Plucky Ladies Podcast, exploring female curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence. Hosted by Jess Cat. Today on Plucky Ladies, I talk with Dr. Joellen Russell. Joellen is a professor in the Department of Geosciences, and she's an oceanographer. And as of late, her work has been focusing on the Southern Ocean and its relationship to climate change. And I'm so excited to talk to Joellen today because she puts robots in the ocean, and I can't wait to talk about that. So welcome, Joellen. Hi, Jess. I'm Hi. so glad to see you. Yeah, I'm glad to see you, too. Joellen was in my class last week talking to a group of honor students about being a woman in science and the work that she does. And I want to revisit some of that today and talk about your work in the oceans because I think it's really fascinating and, of course, very important. But before we do that, I want to go back a little and have you tell our listeners a bit about your childhood because I only learned last week that you were born in or grew up in Alaska. Yep. And so the part that you told my students about what drew you to the ocean, I want you to talk about that because it was so fascinating. I I grew up in an Eskimo fishing village called Kotzebue, um, which is about 31 miles above the Arctic Circle on north of the Bering Straits yeah. on the Arctic Ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually the Chukchi Sea. And okay. it's basically a sand spit that's formed from the rivers, the Noatak and the Kobuk rivers that for, that drain the Brooks Range. Okay. And we just live out on this tiny little spit, and all winter it is totally iced up. You can walk across to the mainland, no problem, And although it's very far yeah. and dangerous. Yeah, but yeah. You can. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people still, when I was there, still use dog sleds for transportation because, of course, a dog won't run out of gas. <laughs> sure. And if you fall in, he might drag you back out. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, that won't happen with a snow machine. Exactly. And uh, they can eat fish if you're on a long trip. They can eat things. And they'll even eat your poop. Oh, <laughs> I know that's <my> terrible. God. <laughs> yeah. So they're pretty much just go, go, go. Yeah. yeah. Well, dogs are really good. Yeah. And uh, so I learned uh, they I I'm not native. I wasn't born there. My father worked for Indian Health Service, and uh, so my brother and I had this amazing childhood where the village let us just be part of the kids, and it was it was amazing. Um, I remember I have a really vivid memory though of when we we I was about five, mm-hmm. and I heard the shout go up that sounded to me like ice cream man. Oh, you know, like treats, treats, yeah, treats. Yeah, yeah. And I, I didn't know the Inupiat word for treats, yeah. but that's what it sounded like yeah. was goodies, yeah, right? So yeah, you yeah. run down, you follow the other kids that are running down to the beach, the gravel beach, and they've got a boat that they're pulling in, just a little open boat, and they're they're beaching a beluga that they've just oh hunted, my and uh, they were butchering it right there, and they cut pieces of the um, of the fat called muktuk, mm-hmm. which they then sliced like it, so it looked like um, watermelon because okay. the skin is like the rind and the yeah. fat, and uh, they were handing it out to the kids. And I'm like, treats, you know? I'm like, woo! Yeah. It's, it's lard. It's it lard. tastes like blubber. But That's the kids were eating is. it. Everybody was. It's a delicacy. Wow. It's absolutely. And so my mother would have pinched me to death had I not, you know, turned away food in a starvation culture that's incredibly generous of them sure. to include us. I mean, it's not like my dad's going to go out there and hunt a beluga. Right. So, <laughs> you know, I ate mine. Yeah. Just like everybody else. But oh I remember gosh. thinking when I took the first bite, this is not ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my Lord. That would be quite quite an awakening. I'm but eating lard as every, a treat. Every breakup, the sea ice would go out. 
Now it's so dangerous. You can't, you know, if a dog gets stuck, nobody can go get him because it'll stave in your canoe. It will break your boat. You could get smushed between two ice flows and they're very heavy. So if the dog gets stuck on an ice flow going out, he just goes. That's it. And uh, that, that, so it was kind of dramatic and you could hear it crashing and crunching all night long as it starts to break up and go. And I just wanted to know where it went. Yeah. Just wanted to know so bad. I wanted to be an explorer. I wanted to go to sea. I wanted to see where all that ice went. And now I've swum in every ocean, yeah. and I know where the sea ice goes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what I love about that story is that that is curiosity at its peak. I mean, that's kids are curious yep. to begin with. But for you, it was a curiosity that stuck with you through your whole life and ended that's up right. drove you where you are today. It, it's a dramatic childhood. I close my eyes sometimes, and I can still feel that really endless white horizon, mm. and how what what's there? Right. Let's go see yeah. what's there. I mean, because part of that you just and open like we're out. You yeah. know, we're not in the city with a million people and all the cars and beep beep honk honk. Right. And you go to sea, and you're out. Exactly. And the ocean is kind of that's really the last frontier today what is out there what is down there we don't really know we haven't looked yeah we haven't looked and and the part of the problem is is that since 1989 when the cold war ended our our the number of ships we have available to do oceanographic research has dwindled and the reason is as we mothball ones that have to be retired we haven't been replacing them so without robot floats we would be making about half the number of measurements that we made at in 1990 right when we were young you know yeah yeah yeah. seriously yeah no i believe you so the problem is is you know you 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 want to become a scientist you want to go to sea you want to be an oceanographer you want to go exploring and there are no ships for you right so you say to yourself what am i gonna do what do i do there's gotta be a solution and part of that is robot floats yeah and uh they can do work that we can't do because we can't be out there all the time because it's very expensive it's also very carbon intensive and uh and it's hard on your family frankly Mm -hmm. being far away for long periods of time uh you and i both have kids so it's one of those things where like i'm glad i did a lot of my open ocean going to see oceanography when i was younger when i didn't have kids because it'd be very hard now to be gone for 46 or 56 days at a time sure um that's not even including all the travel to get to the ship just the actual number of days at sea so these are my my student becky beebling Mm -hmm. just deployed floats last summer you know and her cruise was 46 days and she said it was long oh my goodness my (laughs) husband and i have this discussion all the time because when we were graduate students you know we would regularly go in the field for the whole summer so we'd be gone for three months and of course we were young we didn't have kids um but now, you know, quite often, even with graduate students, when he talks to them about field work, sometimes it's like, are we going to go for, you know, two weeks or three weeks? They're like, well, no, you could go for two months. And they kind of were like, whoa, that's, that's too long, you know. And we just look at each other. We're like, we couldn't wait to just get out of Dodge and not come back until classes were starting again. Like, just disappear for the summer and do what you love most, which is geology, and do it in a place where you're completely cut off from all that other crap. Uh, it's not the same going to sea. Is it we, not? Because we have to go on a big team. Yeah. There's 50 people on the yeah. ship, right? Yeah, yeah. And, sure. And it's metal, mm-hmm. and it the engines go around the clock. So it's like living with a leaf blower in your living room. Oh. And the ship, of course, is being shaken by the waves. And of course, I work around Antarctica with the fiercest winds, the worst winters, the most unbelievable 100-foot waves. And it feels like they're going to crush you like a beer can. Okay, I don't so, want to do that for three months. <laughs> you can't. You, yeah. you, you make mistakes. You get tired because it's 
you can't take a break. Say you could have a, a day in the field where you're like, Lay we're around. exhausted yeah. and we're just going to read and make notes and you know, feel better. Do our laundry in the nope. stream. Yeah. There is none of that. There is you know, 12 on 12 off or eight on eight off and, and you just go and go and go. And it, it is very, very hard work. So for us, robot floats is a way to do even more oceanography yeah. and be able to do it you know, we still have to go to sea. You still yeah. have to deploy the floats. Sure. You still have to make the benchmark measurements. Yeah. And to be completely frank, we need the more ships. Yeah. You know, climate change is, is uh, people don't understand that global warming really isn't atmospheric warming. It's right. ocean warming. Right. The ocean has taken up 92% of the extra heat. Right. 92. The atmosphere's only taken up three. Right. So I know everybody gets very excited about, you know, oh my God, it's so hot. I'm like, yeah, except did you see that the Great Barrier Reef only a third of it just went? It just died. And it died because it got so hot in the ocean that, that it expelled all its zozenthelia on a third of the reef. Yeah. And it's like, epically hot in the ocean now and there's no way to cool it down because yeah. every year we add more carbon and every year it just gets warmer when you said there it ex- it expelled its whatever you called it dozenthelia okay. little algae the algae that is in its the, it's skin. actually in its skin right yep. so it gives it the color what it looks like yeah. and otherwise it just looks white it's a and we call it's a it twin call engine it bleaching, it's symbiote you know yeah. where they have a hard shell that has that holds the polyp which is the eat thing stuff it in its gut part yeah. the animal part yeah and then the zozenthelia that live in its skin and when it's too hot and desperate, it expels its ozanthelae yeah. and hopes that it can reabsorb them within five weeks. Oh. But if it lasts longer than five weeks, if the temperature doesn't drop, then they die. They die. Yep. And yeah. if the zozanthelae die, then they only have one way to get food, which is the eat it, stuff it in its gut, instead of the two, which is photosynthesis from the oh, algae right. mm-hmm. during the day and eating with the polyp whenever anything comes by. Sure. But if you cut half your food supply in half, they just die. Right. And it's interesting, too, because I don't think people realize when we say the oceans are getting hot. Like people say, oh, I go, you know, you go to the ocean, it feels cold. It's not that it's hot. Like you wouldn't necessarily even feel that. You say but it's that, except change. Scripps Pier just had record epic temperatures. I was there this August, yeah. and the t- the pier was literally the hottest it's ever been. Like, give me a give me an example. It was what like eighty five degrees wow. off the Scripps Pier. It's supposed to be freezing out there. It was hot. Yeah. Now, don't quote me on the eighty five because yeah. I'm not sure I completely remember. But it was like eighty something. It was very very it, warm. I got in. It was bathtub temperature. It felt like yeah. warm snot. You know, yeah. like oh, very gosh. warm. It was like ew. Yeah. I mean, it was beautiful. It's yeah. San Diego. La Jolla yeah, yeah, Shores yeah. is gorgeous. But sure. the Scripps Pier's been out there for a hundred and 20 years right yeah this is nuts it is nuts and it's nuts too because you can still have places that are cold like the polar vortex oh gosh there's a polar vortex happening it doesn't mean that the globe isn't getting warmer and that's another thing that well, people don't always and people understand. are always thinking about the atmosphere because that's we live on land we live in the atmosphere sure. we think about the atmosphere but that's only three percent of the, the warming you know right. whereas the ocean has absorbed 92 percent which is why we're getting remember the great barrier reef is a million years old and a thousand miles long yeah and it just went a third yeah this Bye-bye. in two years, 2016 and 2017. And just by the way, we're heading for another El Nino year this year, says NOAA this morning. The yeah. Weather Service says is where we're headed. So yeah. hold your breath. Yeah. And if you have a chance, go see it now. 
well, there's still some reef that looks like it did. Yeah. So now tell everyone a little bit about El Nino, because that's something I know what it is, but not everybody would know what well, an El Nino year means. So an El Nino is when we have um, the easterly winds along the equator, the trade winds. Mm-hmm. They pull up the water because they're pushing along the equator from South America over to Indonesia, and they pile up all this water. It's warm because the winds are kind of, you know, they kind of push it up, and they get a little pile of very, very hot water. It's You know, scientists have such exotic names for this it's yeah. called the warm pool yeah Ooh. <laughs> yeah but it's, it's the hottest water on planet earth okay. in the ocean yeah. and that hot water well piled up um occasionally everyone every three to seven years the winds will fail the easterlies will just stop for a little minute and what happens when it's not there to hold all the water in the pile in the warm pool is it sloshes along the equator it just literally rolls downhill yeah. and uh cu- and it spreads that warm water out but it turns out that the convection the actual boiling up of clouds over very hot water that happens over the warm pool follows the warm water sure so when the warm water moves back across towards peru and south america so does the rain so what we end up with is really bad drought over indonesia in the rainforest and uh and and then they burn. So oh. the seasonal burning you might do for farming, et cetera, gets out of hand when the convection's not there to make all that lovely rain sure. in the rainforest. So it follows the hot water back, and so Peru will be wet. Yep. You know, the South America will be wet, and and Indonesia will be dry. Right. But it actually affects world. You know, okay. used to at least affect water weather patterns worldwide. Yeah. Lately it's been less predictable and we think that's because the ocean in general is warming and the patterns of circulation in the atmosphere and the ocean are changing but uh an el nino generally used to mean that um tucson would be have a wetter winter Mm -hmm. and so next winter we might expect there to be a wetter winter so uh right now it looks like the waters the the easterlies have failed the water's starting to slosh or it, it the it's starting to slosh. It takes a while to get all the way across the equator, sure. along the equator. Mm-hmm. So we're making a prediction here, which might not come true because right. the winds might pick up and pile the water back up. Sure. But right now, it looks like we might have a weak El Nino, that yeah. slosh yeah. next winter. Yeah, and that's a good point you make about making predictions because it's part of science. It's it one is. of the things that we do. And um, so one of the things that you do is that you actually model mm-hmm. what climate might do in the future based on not just stuff that we make up but based on actual data that we collect all over the world from the oceans and the atmospheres and land and all different things Mm -hmm. so talk a little bit about what that means to be a climate modeler so when i first started working in the southern ocean where we didn't have the ships we needed to make enough measurements and i went out and did them by hand back in the day and uh realized really quickly that one things were changing way faster like i was seeing water at the surface that had very little oxygen in it and that makes no sense because the atmosphere is full of oxygen sure so where the heck did that come from yeah turned out it came from very very deep that the winds were blowing harder and they were creating what they call a divergence you know where they're pushing the water away from antarctica and since you can't have a hole in the ocean the water was upwelling yeah and so the crazy part is you get all this water that's coming to the surface that has no ox- very little oxygen oxygen in it. I'm like, this is nuts. Nobody's seen this before at the surface because it really equilibrates very quickly with the atmosphere. So it really has to be coming up fast. So when we didn't have, when I realized how much of this, is it just where I'm sitting? Yeah. Where is it? How much? How big? I couldn't tell. So I thought, 
I would go and find out. So I worked, um, did a postdoc with an atmospheric dynamicist of like, well, tell me where the winds are and that'll tell me where the water's upwelling. Okay, yeah. You know, and because it couldn't make enough measurements to be absolutely certain it wasn't happening everywhere when that had been crazy. Yeah. So I went to, and from there, I decided that I not only need to know the winds, but I needed to model them. So I went to the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory at NOAA and at Princeton and uh, spent years and years and years helping build, develop climate models. And what these are are basically a grid that um, is the whole world. Mm -hmm. It's the ocean grid boxes, like all stacked together, the atmosphere grid boxes, the land grid boxes. And what's wonderful is you look at the exchange of material and energy between all these boxes so that you basically have to keep track of every molecule of water Mm -hmm. and all the energy, which is really kind of an amazing thing. And we put all these physics in it to see how things move and and, and how they exchange. And it's really exciting. And uh, so what's what's kind of dramatic that just happened in the last couple of years is that climate models that we were working on were getting better and better, mm-hmm. right? And uh, so we need more measurements in order to be able to check and see are our models doing well. Mm-hmm. So hence the robot flows with biogeochemistry and all the rest of it, but also that the NOAA and the Weather Service had a bake-off you know, the Weather Service is part of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and GFDL is their climate modeling center. Okay. They're separate, the Weather Service and the climate modeling, right? Okay. But two years ago, they had a bake-off in April where they actually compared the two models, the climate model and the weather model, and the climate model won. Yeah, it did a better job. At predicting, predicting what was going to happen, and then yep. we do a skills test to test and see how well they did. Yeah. And the climate model came out. So FV3GFS is the new weather service model for whether or not we bring an umbrella. Yeah. And it is a climate model. Based on And climate. the reason yeah. is we need an ocean because the ocean is so warm now, it's tossing all this water vapor into the air. Mm. And so the old weather model wasn't able to handle just with an atmosphere all this new convection, all this boiling up of all this hot water and um, weather, weather, weather changes weren't accommodatable very well within the old framework, yeah. which is just an atmosphere. So yeah. the new one atmosphere ocean working together so that we can get better predictions so that we can save lives and property yeah for sure yeah yeah and it's another th- good point you bring up that i don't think that always people understand the difference too between weather and climate mm-hmm. so that when scientists talk about climate change but there's weather happening somewhere that doesn't seem to fit with global warming we hear skeptics saying ah you know it's the coldest year ever in the northeast and there's more snow than we've ever seen how can it be global warming and i I talk to my students a lot about the difference between what is climate, you know, we're looking at things on decade scales, on long-term scales, you know, versus weather, which is something very local that happens day to day in a specific location. My rule of thumb is that uh, simply that climate is what you expect Mm -hmm. and weather's what you get. Oh, I never thought of it that way. (laughs) So weather is uh, whether or not it rains today or tomorrow, whether the storm comes through your city or goes slightly north of you to the other city. Yeah. You know, it still came through, Mm -hmm. but it went a little further north or a little further south, rained on your house. You know, in Tucson, it could be raining 
pockets at my house and you're a mile and right. a half away and you got nothing. Sunny, yeah. <laughs> right? For sure. Well, so uh, weather prediction is all about trying to figure out whether or not it's going to actually rain at our house, in our town, at what level is the snow line going to get down to, these specifics. And climate is more like how many storms are we usually going to get in Tucson in a winter? Yeah. And 30 years ago, we might get five, maybe even seven. Mm-hmm. Now we get three. Right. And this is a big difference to us. Sure. It's a big difference to our trees and whether or not. And in the summer, how many 100-degree days do we get? Oh, gosh. So we won't, you know, weather is predicting, is this going to be a 100-degree day? Right. But climate is, are we going to get five or 10 or, or 30 60. plus or 60 yes. right that's the issue yeah so what we talk about when we talk about climate change is do we expect that next year we'll have the same number of 100 degree days or do we expect that there'll be more right we were both here for that september oh yeah i seriously thought if i can't start being able to put my kids out to play in the afternoon yeah I'm going to have to drink a lot more. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, please. This is our big (laughs) issue at my house, too. Like, it's too hot to be outside, and I get it. It's dangerously hot. They need to run around. They need to run. And it's so hard. I know. And I feel like, so I've lived here. How long have you been in Tucson? Since 2006. Okay. So we came in 2001, 2002. So I've been here, like, you know, 18 years. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I feel a difference. I mean, it used to, I yep. remember one year where we had snow in the city and, right. you know, we had in the winter, we had a real monsoon and it was rainy a lot and it was wet and it was cold. And now, you know, um, the last two years, my husband has said to me, I haven't worn a long sleeve shirt to work at all this winter. I'm just wearing t-shirts every day. Like it's co- a little cold in the morning. By afternoon, it's warm, dry and as you, heck. If and you then, actually look at our days, we've had our warmest years yeah. of- Five of the last five years have been in the top five warmest years. <laughs> yeah. And last September, just by the way, was the hottest September ever recorded in Tucson. Right. We got 100 years of measurements here, 120 yeah. almost. Yeah. And this was the hottest September ever. Ever. And the way we know that there's big global warming is not, it's when we look at the records broken. Right. We're getting nearly two-thirds of our records are being broken hot. On the high end, yep. Only a third are being broken on the cold. If we were really evenly no warming it would be even sure but it's not that's right yeah and it's it's kind of scary when you live in a place like tucson you think how much hotter can it really get <laughs> and how much drier can it really get i'm not going to tell you what the climate model say because it will just depress you no i want to know <laughs> i think it's interesting to think yeah. about what it because this is what we should be thinking about so why we should worry care. about that our summer season is going to get longer right, right. it's going to warm up sooner it's going to stay hot and it's going to have more peak hot days like our our heat waves yeah where the big dome forms in the atmosphere and we just cook yeah. You know, the only good part is we're going to be five degrees cooler than Phoenix. <laughs> oh, well, okay. We'll stay here. We'll stay here. But it's a, uh, but we also worry that our wintertime, when our trees get all their water, you know, and why do we care about wintertime for water for trees? It's because trees have deep roots and they need the water to soak in. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, is in the summer, it's so freaking hot that it just evaporates right. before it can be really efficiently used by our plants. You know, it's pretty good for weeds, yeah. but it's not so good for our trees. Yeah. So we're putting heat and drought stress, um, less water, less 
and too much heat on our trees, which makes it really hard to support them. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine, an air, you know, the Sonoran Desert's the only desert with two seasons of water. Right. And it's no coincidence that they're the only desert with lots and lots of cactus. That's right. Saguaros, you know, yeah. or prickly pears. Yeah. Aren't they beautiful? And more biodiversity. Can you imagine I if think. we only have one season yeah. of water, we would be the Sahara. And I think we're more biodiverse with animals as well Absolutely. here than other deserts. It all has to tie well, in. We can to support those top predators, right? right? Because we've got so much more food. Yeah. And what happens when that starts to not? Well, be we the hope case. we hope that doesn't happen. Yeah. Although I talked to Dave Brashears, who's the Regents Professor here in the School of Natural Resources, and he's kind of the king of dead trees. Yeah. And uh, he says multi-taxa failure. Multi-taxa failure. failure, where a whole bunch of different species start to fail at the same time. Oh man. This is, it makes me think about, you know, some people are now talking about how we're heading into or whatever, a sixth math ex- sixth mass extinction. You hear people talk about this sometimes, scientists. Yep. And I think there there's a, I've heard both sides of the story. Well, we're not really, or, you know, if we were, there would be no way to stop it. Oh, we're headed there, but not quite yet. There's hope. There's hope. There's hope. Uh, the U.S. has dropped 15% in their carbon emissions in the last 10 years. Yeah. 15% is not enough, but it's a good start. And we grew our economy at the same time. Mm-hmm. This is one of those cases, and this is just my opinion. I'm a scientist. I'm yeah. not a policy person, but right. I do count carbon sure. for a living. Yeah. And uh, we, we without actually organizing and having a national policy or even state policies on carbon, mm-hmm. we've basically grown our economy and reduced our carbon emissions because we're cheap. Yeah. <laughs> we are just we don't yeah. like to spend bucks we don't need to yeah and so and and everybody says well nobody cares about climate change i'm like have you seen solar panels on the roof do you have solar panels on your roof a lot of them do right. a lot of people have seen them they're going in everywhere and you say well that's a big investment when do you think they're going to get that paid back right 20 years right so they're actually putting their money where their values are and right. saying i want my grandchildren to play outside yeah I want my grandkids to live right here in Tucson and be happy in our green oasis. Yeah. And I'm going to do things now to protect them. Mm-hmm. Even though I don't have grandkids yet. No. I can only hope that, right. you know, I look at my two ones and I'm like, yes, yes, grandbabies. I'm right. going to have Someday. them. It's going to be great. Yeah. And grandma is going to go to the mat for those babies. Right. Even though they're not here yet. Because I believe. Yeah. I, I want them to play outside. I want them to be in our forests. Yeah. You're going up to the cabin, right? Yeah. You know, don't. You want yeah, of it, course. You want it to snow. Yeah. You want to have the forest. And the last two years, it hasn't snowed at Christmas time. Usually we go up at Christmas time and there's snow everywhere. In the last two years, there's been not a flake oh. at Christmas time. So now here we are going in February up to, you know, the mountains of Prescott, 7,000 feet. My son just did a <laughs> science fair project. He's going to Sarsaphir. He yeah. did well in his school. And he did a science fair project on how many days of golf we're going to lose because it's too hot to play. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. And too much rain or flooding or whatever, but he did this nice cl- climate model analysis. He's like it it's it's an interesting analysis because this is these this is our recreation and part of our heritage and the way we think of ourselves and right. what is cool about Arizona. Yeah. And uh it's also happens to be important for tourism mm-hmm. and our bottom line, you know, mm-hmm. brings in money to the state from how, you know, people who come to our PGA tour yeah. events and 
I just, I, I'm glad that we're thinking about it and I'm thrilled to see the investments that Arizona's making, mostly because I think we're gonna, you know, I would love if we were the first state, cause you know, we already do nuclear power, solar power, right. hydropower and wind power. Yeah. We are so close. We could be the first state that actually, you know, hangs out the shingle and says safe, reliable, no carbon power. Yeah. Come on in, yep. you know, to one of the most beautiful states in the nation to clean air and water and yeah. and and beauty. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I just I just so thrilled about the prospects for a state like Arizona yeah. to be a leader in this fashion. You know, we just joined the uh, President Robbins here at the University of Arizona just um, uh, just uh, s- um, uh, signed the university into the Coalition on Climate Change. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, exactly. The U13. I'm very excited. That's awesome. Yeah, it was all over the news last week. And I'm, you know, so we're, we're committing to sustainability on campus. Yeah. You know, and it's mostly okay let's just admit it it saves us money yeah everything we do that we don't have to spend on hydrocarbons that goes ongoing power that we don't actually have to maintain by buying more hydrocarbons sure this is a win yes but two it also makes our air cleaner our water cleaner yeah and and reduces the likelihood that you and i are going to be stuck with our kids in the afternoon when it's hot I know, and they're driving us crazy inside the house because they can't go outside. I'm like, it's winter now, but oh, I can feel the heat coming. coming. And it's I'm thinking, coming. yes, yes, yeah. yes. I'm like, I'm trying to enjoy every day yeah. of our gorgeous, you know, it rained and all the rest of them. Like, you know, this place, it's yeah. such an oasis. It's yeah. so beautiful. Yeah. This state has so much natural beauty. Yeah. You know, it's just such a, I keep thinking, everybody's like, well, they wanted to move the Amazon headquarters to New York. And I'm like, why? Come to Tucson. I was like, what were you thinking? Yeah. You know, we got a trailhead in every direction. And it's affordable to live here. It is. It is. Plus, you know, hello, gorgeous. Yeah, and it's beautiful. It also makes me think about, too, you know, the other people who would could be you know potentially really affected by all this are people who live in coastal areas where you know sea level rise you're going to lose the cities that are the water the, right the the higher big, the sea level the more, yeah and, well we just uh, my my postdoc and i just published a paper in nature mm-hmm. on uh how uh, ocean warming is now contributing um not only is it melting back the sea ice but as a feedback on global climate and the hotter uh the more the ice melts the more heat is trapped in the ocean which melts the ocean melts the ice, ice faster more. yeah so it's one where we're really worried so our the biggest naval base in the united states is norfolk mm-hmm. you know um in virginia there yeah and yeah. uh they are at 1.5 degrees c they're mostly underwater and at two degrees c warming it they are underwater yeah so if you knew the enemy was coming to take your base in 20 years, what would you do? What would you do? In this case, the enemy is <laughs> right. global warming so we, we and don't sea live, level rise. We don't live near the coast here. No, but But we're going to be paying taxes to save our bases because, well, and you know. also I, I think about all of those people whose cities go underwater have to go somewhere. Yep. So it's, it's literally a refugee crisis as oh, millions boy. of people start having to move inland and get away from these flooded cities. They're going to come into all of these other towns and need schooling and medical and, well, and housing. Is, and we've already, we're at 412 parts per million in the atmosphere. When I started like working dioxide. on this, we yeah. were at 360. 360. I just can't yeah. believe, and that's just my life, you right. know. It's right. just crazy how yeah. bad it's gotten. Right. Yeah, it is. It's scary to think about. I want to go back a little bit because you did say, so you grew up in Alaska. You wanted to work in the ocean. So tell everyone you went to school where you wanted to go where? 
for school. Oh, I for wanted to go to school. Scripps. You wanted to go to Scripps. I wanted to go to Scripps. Scripps is like uh, is in San Diego. It's at yeah. the University of California, San Diego. Fun fact. Yeah. Uh, UCSD uh, was founded in 1960. Mm-hmm. Scripps has been there since 1905. What? It's the oldest oceanographic institution oh, wow. in the country. Okay. Beats out Woods Hole, just by the way. Okay. <laughs> Not to start a rivalry or anything, but. <laughs> yeah, I might already be there. Yeah. But, <laughs> but uh, so um, I'd heard of it because I'm, you know, kind of a West West Western girl, sure. And uh, I had read about a Natural Geographic or something like that. And you know, back when we didn't have internet, you yep. know. Yep. And I, I, I wrote Scripps or Bust on my sneakers when I was about twelve. Oh my god! Desperate to go to Scripps. And uh, when I got older, I found out that you can't go there for undergrad. They're only oh, a grad only program. Yeah. I was so disappointed. Mm-hmm. Oh my god! You know, like four more years, I'm gonna have to wait. Oh this my god! Terrible. Yeah. So, I so went you to, went to? I went to my backup school. Which was? Harvard. Oh, oh wow. What a backup school. <laughs> because it's a party school? <laughs> you have to have no, a fallback school? No, no. It was just that they, uh, they, 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 they gave me a very a nice deal. scholarship. Which is, so. you know, that's nothing to sneeze I'm at. the oldest yeah. of five kids. My dad's a social worker. My mom's a teacher. There was no way that yeah. they were paying me to go to some private school right, unless you right, have a scholarship. Right. So I went to Harvard. But what? a lovely story of pluck to be a kid to be 12 years old scripts or bust find out well, i can't go for another four years and and okay so i'll go to harvard i mean I what the heck? yeah i mean what a story but you found your way to scripts you made your way to scripts you did I your did. phd at scripts i did you have to imagine me packing up my car yeah. from my oh god it was a pontiac it's so bad it yeah. was just a lemon yeah and packing up my car and driving across country and i got to scripts and i just was like i've got this yeah. i am doing this you were there it was, it was. you were gonna live your dream it was and then that first cruise the 49 dare that went south of 40 into the roaring southern ocean in the winter uh august september october like just absolutely peak misery and that's where i saw that oxygen missing at oh, the surface wow. and that's it i was hooked i'm you know i wasn't going to just explore in the ocean i was going to explore in the worst ocean yeah and that's my life and that's true even today the southern ocean Still it has the strongest worst. winds biggest waves yep coldest water you yep. say it's but it's zero <laughs> but you say that the southern ocean from what i've heard you say before is absorbing more heat than any other ocean yep. is that true two-thirds to all of it wow I know, I know. Everybody says, you know, why do you work in the Southern Ocean? Don't you want to work in the tropics where it's pretty? And I'm like, this is sort of one of those why do you rob banks kind of questions because that's where the money is. That's where it is. I rob the Southern Ocean Bank because that's where the heat and the carbon are. Yeah. And it's where it's changing the fastest because of this big upwelling problem. And uh, so it's doing a huge service to every human on planet Earth by yeah. taking up carbon that sure. keeps us from warming as fast, taking up heat, which yeah. keeps us from warming as fast. But there's a limit. Yeah, There's a limit to how course. much they can absorb and uh, uh, and how fast it can happen. And we so we're we're trying to learn how to monitor it from robot folks. Yeah, which I want to talk about in a minute. But first, was it when you say misery? Do you get sick on those boats? I would imagine you get sick on those big I waves. I actually got miserably sick on my first research cruise, which was a little tiny training cruise out of Woods Hole when I was at Harvard as an undergrad. Okay. And I was so ill. Everybody was. Out flat the bottom Atlantic. boat. Yes, yeah. flat bottom boat rolling all the time. And uh, Professor Robinson, he used to lecture in a three piece pinstripe suit. Okay. Had the swoosh of gray hair. Yeah. And he was just like the epitome of a Harvard professor, you know? Yeah. Oh, man. He used to lecture and just 
write equations. One day we counted and he only said 17 words of English. The entire rest was math. Oh, wow. Like absolutely nothing. He didn't, hello class and then math and then math and then math and we're done and that was about it. Wow. And he just throw the boards up, you know, those rolling boards yeah, that yeah. go up. Oh mm-hmm. my God, it was, it was horrible. But he took us to see uh, for a few days and uh, there were only 12 students in the class and they promptly all got sick and there were like two who weren't so sick and then me who was misery sick, but he knew my name. Oh, no. <laughs> you know exactly what I mean. Russell, oh, get no. out of the deck. Russell, get on the winch. I finally, like, after days of, like, no sleep and all the rest of it, because everybody else is in their bunks, there's just three or four of us working, yeah. you know, and we're trying to get the CTD over the side and all the rest of it, but weather was bad. And uh, so I finally, the winch is going down, and I'm not on the winch. And I curled up under the printer. I knew I wouldn't get away with leaving the deck, but I just went into, you know, just off the deck and curled up under the printer on the floor. He literally kicked me out from under the printer. <gasps> it was awful. But the thing is, I think I broke something in my inner ear because I've never gotten seasick. You think something happened on that trip? I do. And then it changed all your Well, we future. got back to sea. I'm going to tell you this horrible story for your podcast. Please tell me. <laughs> it's a terrible story. I love these stories. <laughs> Just by the way, he was a jerk. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so so we get it back into land and the um, all the other kids like climb right into the van. They're so sick. They're so tired. They were really bad. But I'm hauling stuff with his postdoc and all the rest okay. of it because when he knows your name, he just keeps saying, Russell, grab this, whatever. Yeah. So I'm doing stuff. And he finally shoves a bagel at me and a glass of orange juice and says, you have to eat. I mean, I hadn't eaten in days. Oh, I mean, gosh. I must have looked pretty bad. Well, who wants and to eat when you're seasick? I know, I know. Yeah. But I eat it. And then I get back to the van and they've packed it all full. And he says, so you'll have to ride back t- with me and the postdoc in my car. Okay. I'm like, okay. It's an Alfa Romeo spider. Oh. He and the postdoc sit in the front, and I get crammed sideways into the back seat with my backpack. Yeah. And it's Woods Hole traffic all the way to Boston. Hmm. And he, I swear he could not drive. He had oh, a no. stick shift. With the orange like, juice slashing around in that your That was belly. it, exactly. So oh, please, gosh. sir, please, 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 Professor Robinson, I, I, I think I'm going to be sick. I really, can we just pull over for a minute? He's like, I can't get out of the traffic. It's all in your head, Russell. Oh and I'm like, gosh. and then I, you know, I wait a few minutes and I'm like literally biting my tongue and pinching myself, trying to be like, do not barf, do not barf. And uh, so he finally, I'm like, sir, sir, I, I, I really, yeah. I'm, I'm going to be sick. Yeah. And he says, it's all in your head again, Russell. So I open up my backpack and I aim for my backpack because I know I'm going to be really ill. Yeah. And I miss and I, I mostly hit the backpack, but I sort of didn't and went all over his Cordovan leather seats. Well, good. <laughs> I was going to say, at that point, spray and you know it right he did. the front seat. You know what he did? He <laughs> just rolled down the window and kept driving. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, uh, you left him a little gift. It's, it's okay. At one, point, at, one point, at one point, I was being gutted at some seminar at Harvard, and uh, Professor Andy Knoll, who is an amazing scientist, yeah. National Academy, and... Uh, um, just an epic paleontologist, and I adore him. Yeah. And he leaned over after I'd been gutted in front of everybody, and he leaned over and whispered me in, in my ear. He said, Joellen. I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, Joellen, in 20 years, you'll be tenured, and he'll be dead. Oh. <laughs> and you want to know what? He was. He was. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, that's gosh. a horrible story. But, you know, but but no, the message in there, I mean, really, there is a message, right? Time. Which is 
Yeah, it, 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 there's always a time in your life when you feel like, you know, this is the worst it's ever going to be, or I'm never going to be a scientist, or I'm never going to succeed, or I feel so sick that I'm... And then you look back on it later, and there's something you got out of that. There's some story or yep. some nugget of truth well, or some kernel of something. What you figure out is that grit and persistence yes. is almost everything. Right. I know that everybody doesn't believe it when they say, you know, 99% perspiration or yeah. most of the job is showing up. That's right. But... It is. It is. That's not a joke. You you get up after your worst defeat ever, yeah. and you go back to work. Right. I mean, scientists, we are the best failures ever. Yeah, we fail all we the fail time. all the time. All the time. You know, nobody gives us a standing ovation. We get... No. Yeah, we just get another review that says, you need to fix all these things, you know. Yeah, your data set isn't strong enough. That's right. Or, yeah. That's the way it goes. Your and the funny part is, is, I always think that people who want no criticism are in the wrong field, because yeah. the fact is we ask for it our job it's like we're boxers yeah like your sport is getting in the ring and punching each other in the face yeah you know like and the whole point is is if i knock you out then your paper doesn't get published right you know i'm Wouldn't an do I'm, better. I'm, I'm an associate editor yeah. you know um I, you know and i review a ton of papers so i'm sure you do too and and we submit a lot of papers and and that's just the way that goes and if you're not comfortable and they're not really punching you in the face. It no. just feels very feels bad because you don't like the criticism. Sure. But the fact is, if you recognize that it is, in fact, part of our sport, yeah, part of our job, right. that, in fact, that, that kind of confrontation of yes. ideas yes. leads to rigor. Yes. And we get good at this. And progress. And, then we, and so I always say when my students are like, oh, I don't want to turn in my draft. I'm like, get in the ring. Yeah. Turn in the draft. Get exactly. in the ring. Got to get in the ring. Yeah. I mean, you can't be a boxer if you don't get in the ring. We got to get in the ring. Yes. And the other part is, is, by the way, boxers really do get hit. Yeah. We don't. Right. <laughs> you know, this is just an academic ouchie, not yeah. a, right. you know, and it has real consequences. You sure. know, lose too many battles and you won't get enough published. Right. You know. Um, but, but it does force you to be better. And it forces right. you. It actually helps science progress and move exactly. forward. Because otherwise, if we were just all looking at each other going, oh, that's perfect. Oh, you did a great job. But your data set wasn't strong or it your makes, work didn't make sense exactly we wouldn't know what we know that's right we are fierce competitors because the ultimate test is can we make a prediction and will it come true mm. in this real world that we live in this universe the rules are already acting we're just trying to figure out what they are that's right so now tell us what a robot float is because not everyone knows what that means. Actually, what every, it, it doesn't what it have does. arms. It doesn't no. have arms. Right. It's a long yellow tube that's about as tall as you are, yeah. you know, about six feet. And uh, uh, and it, ours are bright yellow because yellow is easiest to see in the sure. ocean. Sure. Same as you would your scuba gear. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and uh, the top has an antenna on it and a couple of sensors and a housing, et cetera. But the main body of the tube is basically the ballasting, which has a an inflatable and deflatable tube that actually allows you to uh, raise and lower the float in the water. Yeah. And everybody says, well, why not an ROV? Why not like a drone? Why not drive one around? Well, there are those. Yeah. They're called gliders, and sure. we do drive them around. Yeah. But they're not my main research tool and the reason is that the law of the sea says that if you drive it into somebody's exclusive economic zone it's you need a permit oh, from the country sure. that you're in mm -hmm. but if it drifts in mm. it's legal yeah 
I love this so much. Yeah. So the Argo program is, you know, it didn't start with me. It started with uh, Dean Remick and others at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography with mm-hmm. friends from across the country at places like the University of Washington. Steve Reiser is one of the originals, and he is one of the ones I work with. He mm-hmm. builds all the floats we deploy. Okay. And uh, they're at Woods Hole, and they, they, they basically started deploying a lot of floats in about 2004. And we now have 3,000 out. Wow. But they only measure temperature and salinity. Okay. What happens is they sit at, and this is the best part, so they sit at 1,000 meters. Everybody's like, why not at the surface? Well, they can get run over, they can get snagged on things, and they foul. They get gunk, biological gunk uh-huh. growing on them. Yeah. So they sit at 1,000 meters in the dark, yeah. in the cool, yeah. basically in the refrigerator, yeah. and they drift along. Yeah. And they don't move as fast because they're down deep where the currents are a little slower. Sure. And every 10 days, they drop down to 2,000 meters, and then they make a profile of measurement straight to the top one oh, clean wow. profile and then they beam the data back when they po- poke their noses out by iridium satellite and we do an algorithmic qc quality control where we just automatically quality control it and then we put it online within two hours just automatically wow. and all the data is public worldwide etc it's one of the reasons why we don't actually get any ship time we don't buy ship time in order sure. to buy our floats we beg our friends yeah I'm really serious. We yeah. send our students and we beg our friends, can you take one? How about a couple of floats? Yeah. Take our student, take some floats, get yeah. them out for us. Sure. And by the way, we're going to need to see all those measurements you're making so that we can calibrate them too. Sure. <laughs> but yeah. so we actually, it's kind of like stone soup. Everybody puts in their bit. Now it, it's a well-funded program. We have $22 million from the National Science Foundation's polar programs. Wow. Um, and uh, uh, I'm the lead for the modeling mm-hmm. and uh, Lynn Talley, uh, who's on my committee when I was a graduate student and we're now colleagues and she is the lead for the observations Mm -hmm. and uh, it's headquartered uh, with Jorge Sarmento at at Princeton University. Okay. Um, uh, uh, I actually tried to get a science and technology center proposal out of the University of Arizona. Yeah. But I was young and the dean said we i wasn't competitive yeah. and wouldn't let me submit it yeah 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 <laughs> so i called jorge and said hey jorge i want to put in a science and technology center he's like what's a science and technology center i'm like <laughs> let me send you all my research and yeah. he's like and i'm like can you do you could you call the dean your dean and see if he'd let us put one up sure and he called and the dean said yes that's amazing and it was just like that yeah. that's how socom was born yeah. i mean from there you can see okay there were a couple of hiccups yeah. along the way yeah. i don't know if you remember the sequester <laughs> tell us first what socom stands for southern ocean carbon and climate observations and modeling okay so that is actually a hybrid there yeah. most people would just study the physics of the ocean like the heat um, or the salinity or or the carbon yeah you know nope we do both we're yeah. doing all together now yeah. and most people just do observation we're just putting out the floats but I think you can't get as much information out if you don't also do the modeling right again how you know I went to C and then I did Atmo and then I did modeling and now I'm going back to C right because yeah. you this is the loop it should be the do loop you know right. for how one addresses climate change and earth science and particularly oceanography yeah so the socom this project that it became we put together a science and technology center proposal because it's 50 million bucks yeah. you know 25 oh five million a year yeah. with a renewal for an additional five years for a total of 50 and we're like wouldn't that be awesome yeah oceanographers woohoo yeah and then uh we were selected that's amazing. And we were in the five on the blue ribbon panel, and then the sequester happened. And in right before, I was actually on my camping trip for the 4th of July, and 
uh, they called and said, the sequester says we, we're only going to be able to fund three and you're one of the two that don't get it oh man i could barely get out of bed in july oh yeah. my god yeah <coughs> big because it was huge yeah. it was it was very unhappy making so we uh decided that it was too important to let it go right so we wrote a white paper yeah my colleagues were like, oh, do we really want to do this? I'm like, we do. Yeah. We have to. Yeah, it's yeah. important. Yeah. It's too important. We can't not, we can't not try. You have to try. Wrote a white paper, yeah. sent it to NSF, and said, this is the most important thing you can do for oceanography. We are half down on our measurements because we don't have enough ships. Right. This, each float costs $100,000, and it will give us 250 profiles before it dies. Each ship day costs fifty thousand, and we get three profiles. Oh my gosh! So two days of ship time, the same hundred thousand dollars gives yeah. us six profiles, as opposed to two hundred and fifty from the float. Right, it's a no-brainer. I would take more ships if I could get them. Right, but if I don't have a ship, I have to have a robot. Yeah. So we sent the white paper in, and they called us up. And we're like, Oh no, not you guys again! And they said, Yes. Yes. <laughs> ah. Oh my gosh. So now we have 130 of those robot floats out there around Antarctica and we're going to put in another 70 here yeah. in the next couple of years. It's amazing. And we got last year I got to write a nature commentary. Yep. Uh, I got uh my postdoc got a paper in nature and we got a nature climate change paper uh and we have one out in nature geoscience for review right now. That's so amazing. It's like it took a lot of effort to yeah. build this, but it's a revolution in oceanography. Yeah. And uh we're going to change the world. I love that. And what a great and again, a great message of persistence. Grit. Right? Got to have it. Find the grit and make it happen. And work with friends. And work with friends. You never got, never work with anybody you wouldn't stay up till 2 in the morning with. That is a great that's a great message too. That's right, because especially out on a boat, you're trapped out on a boat with someone for 40 days. You want to make sure that this is a team that you trust. Well, and I'm sending my students out with them, too. I want yeah. them, I need to know that they'll be safe and mentored and learn lots of good things. And, you know, do you know what I mean? We're yeah. a tight team. Mm -hmm. And and I am thrilled to work with my colleagues. Um, I want to say to any students who are listening, too, that you had a student who started out in your general education oceanography class, not a scientist, who went on to become a scientist and is deploying some of your floats. Yep. And so um, don't hesitate if you're in a class that piques your curiosity. Absolutely. That's what, That's what office hours are for. That's what office hours are for. Talk to your professor. Um, I'm sure that you still have undergraduates who work for you in I your do. lab. So if I people do. are interested, they can get in touch with you. I will link your website thank you in the episode but i want to thank you for coming and oh, talking to me it's happy to so see you fun. jess it's always um, fun plucky ladies podcast is recorded in the studios of the office of digital learning at the university of arizona special thanks to the team for recording sound editing and photography you can catch all episodes of plucky ladies on soundcloud itunes and on my website jesscap.com that's j-e-s-s-k-a-p-p.com and click the tab labeled The Podcast. Send me a message with your plucky story and it might be featured on a future episode. Subscribe to Plucky Ladies Podcast and come along on all of my journeys into female curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence.